Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. Martha Stewart, the original influencer. When I think about anything, I think about the way that she did it first. The media mogul. The six years ahead, she saw what was coming. The prisoner, the rise, the fall, and the reinvention of an American icon. Once Martha paved the road, everybody else pretty much copied her. A CNN original series, The Many Lives of Martha Stewart, now streaming on Max. It was the summer of 1996 in Portsmouth, Virginia, and Terrence Hobbs had just started dating Devonna Byers, a young woman who shared a five-year-old daughter with one of the biggest drug dealers in town. When the FBI pressed Devonna about aiding her ex with money laundering, she agreed to testify against him in his federal drug charges, planning to skip town afterward. Devonna and Terry's budding romance fizzled as a result. On July 20th, 1996, shortly after her testimony, the bodies of Devonna Byers and another lover, Leon Porter, were discovered having both been shot once in the head. Investigators immediately honed in on Terry Hobbs, Devonna's most recent ex. But with no physical evidence to corroborate the theory, the case went cold. As the summer wound down, a bank robbery occurred in nearby Virginia Beach. While facing unrelated charges, an old junior high acquaintance of Terry's, Eric Cook, alleged that he had called Terry from jail and that Terry had confessed to both the bank robbery and the July double homicide. At the bank robbery trial, the bank teller and another employee corroborated Eric Cook, which must have meant that Terry's fingerprints had just been missed by the crime scene technicians. At the double homicide trial, five witnesses, facing their own criminal charges, painted Terry as a jealous ex-boyfriend but they couldn't possibly all be lying, especially about a convicted armed bank robber. But this is wrongful conviction. Welcome back to Wrongful Conviction. Today we have a first on this program, a double wrongful conviction. Now, Terrence Hobbs was convicted of a bank robbery and then a completely separate double homicide, both of which he had nothing to do with. Terry joins us from Nottaway Correctional Facility in Virginia. Terrence, welcome to Wrongful Conviction. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. And joining us is a man who knew Terry on the inside. He himself was rightfully convicted for a string of robberies in the 90s in which no one got hurt. And the proceeds amounted to around $511. But I think it's fair to say that you were over-sentenced, having received a grand total of, get this, 
1,310 years. Governor McAuliffe granted him a conditional pardon back in 2018. And Lenny has been fighting to clear Terry ever since. Lenny Singleton, welcome to the show. Thank you. Glad to be here. Very glad to have you. And also here with us is someone who's been fighting for Terry the longest, his mother, Catherine Hobbs. Thank you from the bottom of my heart for joining us and very courageously sharing today. You're welcome. Happy to be here. Now, these crimes took place in two cities that are close to one another. There was a bank robbery in Virginia Beach, and about a month before that, there was a double homicide in which the departed were a woman named Devonna Byers, who was the mother of a drug kingpin's daughter, and her new lover, Leon Porter, a man who was in possession of a very large amount of cocaine. So, you know, maybe he was a competing dealer. We, we don't know, but it doesn't seem far-fetched. So the homicide portion of this is certainly touching that world in Portsmouth, Virginia. Now, Lenny, when you were in the military, before your conviction, you were stationed in Virginia, right? Remember, Portsmouth, Virginia was like one of the heroin capitals of the world, this country anyway. And they were known for corruption. Every time I opened the paper back in the 90s, there was always some issue about corruption in Portsmouth. Right. And Terry, you grew up there. So could you, or maybe Ms. Hobbs, if you want to jump in here too, could you tell us about your life growing up? I was born August the 3rd, 1970, in the city of Portsmouth, Virginia, to an upper-middle-class black family. Pretty much had a typical childhood, I guess you could say. So I, I was diagnosed with dyslexia in third grade. And he was very self-conscious about that. They said he had above-average intelligence, but he had the reading problem. And at the time, they didn't know how to help students with that reading problem. So they put him in special education, in which you get a certificate, you do not get a diploma. We come from a military family, and he wanted to go so much. And with that certificate, he was not able to go. And your military upbringing brought you in touch with guns, and you own several legal firearms, all of which were being stored out of your possession at the time of the crime. But even the fact that you owned firearms at all was eventually used against you, even though none of your guns could be connected to the crimes we're about to discuss here. But let's get back to Terry's childhood. I started working at an early age. I got a job at Food Lion at age 16 and worked all through high school at Food Lion. After Food Lion, my cousin got me a job with him working at the shipyard. Unfortunately, I got laid off. And at one point in time, I did get involved in selling drugs on a very small level. But I never got arrested for it. And then after I was able to, you know, get my career back on track, I walked away from it. And you'll get no judgment from me about being involved in drugs. But that, along with the love of motorcycles, did bring you into contact with a crowd of people who later went on to help frame you in exchange for leniency in their own very serious cases. But in the lead up to these two incidents, you were gainfully employed at the Coast Guard Base shipyard. Now, I want to go back to your time at Food Lion during high school. You worked there for a short while with one of the victims in this case, right? Devonna Byers. Is that where the two of you first met? I met Devonna Byers in junior high school, and we pretty much hung with different crowds. She was always extremely beautiful and extremely popular. Then later on, she worked at Food Lion with me for maybe three months, and I probably didn't see her again until I was about 25 years old. 
And at that time, you two became romantically involved. But that unfortunately got cut short, most likely by the circumstances in her life surrounding the father of her five-year-old daughter, Kia, a man named Nathaniel Skeet Richardson, who was a major player in the Portsmouth drug game and was under federal indictment at the time. But before he got his federal drug indictment, he had a, a long list of charges, a lot of them violent. Even one of the charges was the shooting death of his girlfriend and unborn child. And he went on to getting out on a million dollar bond. So this is a young guy who's already a suspect in the killing of the mother of his unborn child. And he's got a lot of money. He probably paid 100000 cash on that million dollars to get himself out. Maybe he put up the whole million. I don't know. But one way or another, he was loaded. He was making more money in a month than most of the police officers were making in a year at that time back in Portsmouth. So clearly, had he chosen to, he had more than enough money to corrupt a local officer into giving him a pass or even offering him protection from the law. Possibly. I wouldn't be surprised back in those days, not with Portsmouth. It wasn't uncommon for police to be on payrolls, especially these drug kingpins back in those days. From what I understand at 22 or 23 years old, Skeet Richardson had so much money that he had developed a money laundering scheme involving the purchase and trade of expensive cars. And one of those trades involved Devana. And eventually the feds approached her, threatening her with money laundering charges if she didn't cooperate in their prosecution of Skeet Richardson, who was under federal indictment for a laundry list of drug charges, conspiracy, etc. I told her I felt like considering the people that they were asking her to talk about and testify against, I didn't think it was in her best interest. And I told her, you know, the money laundering charges are considered white collar crimes. You may do two or three years and you can start your life over. She wasn't interested in hearing it. She wasn't trying to do a single day. It was that decision to testify against him that was more than likely what led to her death. So she was subpoenaed to appear in court, and she did. And then what happened? About a week or two before she was killed, she went to either Mississippi or Alabama to spend some time with family down there. And after she came back, she asked me if I would be willing to move with her to Mississippi or Alabama after she finished cooperating with the FBI. And I, you know, I, I'll be honest with you, I considered it, but I didn't want to have to leave my home under those circumstances. I had nothing to do with it. So at this point, even though you two were still occasionally sleeping together, you had created some distance between you and Devana, hardly the actions of a jealous boyfriend. As the state would later paint you when you were prosecuted for what happened in the aftermath of her testimony in this federal drug trial. So let's get to that. This was the night of July 19th into the 20th of 1996, just two weeks after she had testified against her baby's father, who was, of course, the drug kingpin. Now, apparently she had been with her parents earlier that evening, went home with her five-year-old daughter, Kia, and a man named Leon Face Porter, this is his nickname, Face, Kia had gone to bed. Then around midnight, an ear witness heard gunshots. Around 4 a.m., Kia called her grandfather after discovering her mother and Mr. Porter were dead. Police found that the outside door and apartment door had been busted open. Devana was found by the foot of the bed, shot in the back of the head. Mr. Porter was found lying on the bed and he had been shot in the face, as if he had been sitting on the edge of the bed when he was shot. I woke up to 
and my pager going off back to back to back to back to back. The rumor was that Devonna and I had gotten murdered once they found out that I hadn't gotten killed. And because of the nature of our relationship where we were still sleeping with each other from time to time, I became a suspect. They tried to say it was a crime of passion, a jealous boyfriend, but those two people were shot execution style only once. And they'd know that she had just testified against the biggest drug dealer in Portsmouth, Virginia. Right. Even though Devonna's baby's father, Nathaniel Skeet Richardson, was the logical suspect, they pursued Terry anyway. But you had seen a movie with your sister the night before, then went to your parents' house to pick up some mail before spending the night at your sister's. And when you woke up to your pager just blowing up, you called some friends, found out what had happened, and you and your sister went to Devonna's parents' house. And I agreed to talk to the police. And at some point in time, Detective Huntington and Detective Beachler showed up at Devonna's house. So they asked you to accompany them to the detectives bureau. And you were, I would say, as cooperative as you possibly could be at first. They, you know, asked me a few questions, asked me about my whereabouts that day. And uh, then they got around to asking me if I owned any firearms, which I told them I did and gave them a list of the firearms. They asked me if I had any problem with them running ballistics tests on them. I had the guns delivered to the police department. I consented to the gunshot residue test. Right. They tested his guns. They tested his fingerprints. Nothing matched. They asked me if I had any problem taking a lie detector test, which I didn't at the time. Yeah, you agreed to the lie detector test. And you also told him where he could find your other firearm at the Portsmouth Bait Tackle and Pawn Shop. Detective Huntington went there to try to retrieve my Glock from the shop. And I think the lady's name was Kathleen Hathcock. And he told her personally that he was there to to get my gun because it was used in a murder. Luckily, she had the presence of mind to ask when the murders took place. After he told her when the murders took place, she told him that it was no way possible that that weapon could have been used and that crime because it had been in her shop prior to the crime taking place. So it seems that Detective Huntington had already pretty much decided that you were the focus of his investigation, despite the fact that you had been cooperative. There was nothing that was a match for you. There were alibis, and there was nothing that pointed in your direction. Anyway, you started getting wind of this, right? Detective Huntington, at one point in time, he actually told my sister that he had been informed by several individuals that I was running around in the street bragging that I had committed the murders. And I called Detective Huntington back and asked him, What was he talking about? Because I hadn't been talking to anybody. I told him straight up, I said, look, it seems like you're more concerned with listening to rumors that you're hearing in the street versus taking what you have at the crime scene, the actual evidence, and using that as your starting point to start your investigation and do your job. So then after we had that conversation, he asked me would I still be willing to come in and take the lie detector test the next day. I told him I was not interested in taking the lie detector test instead of him doing his job. It seemed like he was more interested in trying to hang these crimes on me. So now things are heated between you and this detective, but he's got nothing on you. Nothing connects you to this murder besides your previous relationship with the deceased. And there's definitely a much more motivated and likely suspect in the mix. But for now, the case went cold. The summer was coming to a close, and at this time, two guys that you knew in junior high, Daryl and Eric Cook, had gotten involved in bank robberies. They were awaiting charges on two separate incidents, a bank robbery in Chesapeake and then another one in Portsmouth. And the second one involved a shootout with the police. And Eric Cook, he was looking to trade information for leniency. Seems to me that Mr. Uh, Eric Cook made his living doing that. 
So while that part of the story is simmering in the background, the entire Hobbs family was headed to Franklin, Virginia for a family reunion on Friday, August 30th, when Terry received a traffic ticket on his ride out there. And that ticket was issued around 6.45 p.m. near Franklin, which is only about an hour's drive outside of the Portsmouth, Virginia Beach area. Well, you have to remember this was on a holiday weekend with that beach traffic and people coming in from out of state. That would be about a two and a half to three hour drive fighting that traffic. So this traffic ticket out in Franklin at 6.45 p.m. makes it extremely unlikely that you could even be physically available to commit a bank robbery in Virginia Beach a little after 4 p.m. that same afternoon. Now, this isn't the same bank robbery that Eric and Daryl Cook were arrested for. This is a totally separate incident. This was August 30th, 1996. After 4 p.m. in Virginia Beach, a black man in his mid-20s with a baseball hat, sunglasses, a thick goatee, and a dark blue backpack entered the First Virginia Bank on the corner of Virginia Beach Boulevard and King's Grant Round. He revealed a gun in his waistband, but he never drew it. The bank teller, Ms. Berard, complied with his demands and handed over about $800 in small bills, and the robber fled the scene. Now, this is a bank, so they've got all kinds of surveillance footage, of course, and screenshots of this robber. And I've seen the pictures. There's no way you can look at those photos and say Terry Hobbs did it. At that time, I couldn't even grow a full beard. I had a peach fuzz mustache, and that was pretty much it. But the guy who actually robbed the bank had a full mustache and goatee that was so thick that you couldn't see not a drop of skin through his mustache or goatee. On top of that, the guy wasn't wearing any gloves. According to the transcripts, his hands were over the glass, the case there in the bank. They ran the fingerprints. Guess what? Terry's fingerprints didn't match anything there. Very soon after the robbery, when shown a photo array with Terrence's picture, the bank teller, Ms. Berard, and a bank employee named Jeannie Chaplin both said that they couldn't make a positive ID due to the assailant having worn a hat, sunglasses, and a thick goatee. But somehow that later changed. So no ID, no fingerprint match, where there definitely were fingerprints left at the scene. But now here comes Eric Cook a guy Terry hasn't spoken to since junior high school, who's facing his own bank robbery charges, as well as the attempted murder of a police officer from Virginia Beach City Jail. And he was clearly looking to trade information for leniency. But I thought that he had robbed a bank in Portsmouth. He was on a courtesy hold and protective custody in Virginia Beach because when he was in the Portsmouth City Jail, the city which he attempted to commit the bank robbery in, when he was in the jail block, any person that was in a cell with him or in a pod with him he would get on the phone and call crime solvers and say that these people were confessing to committing crimes. So it eventually got around, and the whole part turned on him and beat him within an inch of his life. And he had to be hospitalized, and after he was released from medical treatment, he was put in Virginia Beach City Jail in protective custody. And that's where he called crime solvers once again from me, even at the expense of almost losing his life or bearing false witness against people, he still hadn't learned his lesson. So he goes from Portsmouth Jail under Detective Huntington's jurisdiction to Virginia Beach, where a friend of Huntington's, a detective named Chris Moline, was working the August 30th bank robbery. And Eric Cook called crime solvers with information that just so happened to benefit both detectives. He claims he called me. He said that I had told him that I had robbed the bank in Virginia Beach and that I had also murdered Devonna Byers and Leon Porter. But this alleged call between you and Eric Cook would have been made from a jail phone. Not only would it have been recorded and made for some really compelling evidence at trial, but it 
also would have shown up on your phone records if, in fact, it ever took place. So I got my phone records during that time, and it showed no calls from no institution on there. Man didn't even have my phone number. Couldn't even tell you what my phone number was. So this phone call just simply never took place. And, you know, calls to Crime Stoppers are anonymous. But yet, instead of the authorities paying a visit to Terry to see what he had to say about these allegations, Somehow, Detective Huntington's buddy in Virginia Beach, Detective Chris Moline, knew exactly who to go visit in the Virginia Beach City Jail. So one can only surmise that this was a plan that was hatched between Moline, Huntington, and their highly incentivized witness, Eric Cook, to make a quasi-anonymous call to crime solvers. But there's something else that's interesting about the interviews with Eric Cook. Every single interview that I have that were copies of statements made to the police with Detective Robert Huntington or David Beachler, and which I think is extremely odd. Why are you sitting and interviewing this man about a Virginia Beach bank robbery? You have absolutely no arrest powers in the city of Virginia Beach. All right. This shit stinks already. But, but as I mentioned, the bank teller, Ms. Berard, and the bank employee, Jeannie Chaplin, did not make an ID from the photo lineup, right? bank teller herself, she says, this guy right here kind of looks like the robber, but because of the robber wearing a disguise, which was the hat and sunglasses, I'm not 100% sure that this is the robber. That is not a positive identification. But yet, if you look at my arrest warrant, it says the reason I was being charged with that crime was due to the sworn statements of Christopher C. Moline, not the actual victim, Tracy Barad or Jeannie Chaplin. So Detective Moline fabricated evidence, and both he and Eric Cook perjured themselves in order to obtain your arrest warrant. The morning of September 23rd, 1996, they took me over to the detective's bureau. They kept me in that room, I don't know how many hours, and Detective Huntington came in there and tried to give me the impression that I was being charged with the murders. And that he was going to make sure that I got the death penalty. I didn't take it too kindly. And I told him if he got off his ass and did his fucking job and went by the evidence at the crime scene, he could find out who committed the murders and stop harassing me. So he looks at me and walked out the room, and within five minutes, Detective Moline came in and asked me to set aside my conversation that I had just had with Detective Huntington. So then he starts talking to me about a bank robbery in Virginia Beach. And he says, I had already been identified as a suspect. I volunteered my fingerprints to run them if they had fingerprints recovered from the crime scene. Not only had they collected fingerprints from the bank robbery, they had already run my fingerprints against the fingerprints from the bank robbery before I was arrested, and they came out negative. They always knew you hadn't committed this crime. And sometimes we just see a nihilistic approach from a detective where they just don't care at all who they get as long as they close the case. You know what they say, a body for a body. But here, it seems as if all of this tension between you and Huntington was just adding fuel to his fire. So were you able to bond out? They took me to the Virginia Beach City Jail. I think I was locked up probably close to 90 days before I was able to get a bond. Right. And I had to get an attorney to get his bond. Ken Melvin, he's a judge now, but the attorney that got the bond for me, and it was a $50,000 bond. So he was out on bond for a little while, but you couldn't afford Ken Melvin for the full trial. And eventually you had a court-appointed attorney, but even for someone who was presumably overworked and underpaid, as almost all of the public defenders in the country are, this still should have been an easy win. You had this false statement from Eric Cook about an alleged phone call that you could prove never 
took place, and then Ms. Berard and Ms. Chaplin, who never identified you. But, as we so often see, sometimes witnesses become more confident in their IDs as the trial approaches. Yes. Now it goes from them not being sure of I'm the person to now being 100% sure that I'm the person. Nine months later, how can she positively say it was Terry and she couldn't do it hours after the robbery? It just, it just smells bad to me that she was coached. But okay, your attorney could have impeached these IDs as unreliable. Considering the fact that the witnesses had not been able to make an ID in the immediate aftermath of the robbery, just hours after it took place, as well as the fact that the bank robber's face and head were covered by a hat, sunglasses, and the thick goatee that Terry couldn't possibly have grown. Plus, we know that you were out of town en route to your family reunion in Franklin, Virginia. You had, I mean, for Christ's sakes, you had a traffic ticket to prove it, as well as the officer who issued the ticket. Now, I understand that he was called as a witness to corroborate your whereabouts, right? When I walked in the courtroom that day, lo and behold, Detective Huntington and Olene are having a discussion with this police officer that issued me the traffic ticket before he ever takes the stand. He takes the stand and states that he can't remember if I'm the person that he actually issued the ticket to. So my next request was is that he give us the original copy of the ticket. Well, the original copy of the ticket supposedly was destroyed and he supposedly had a gallon of paint in the trunk of his car and had an accident and the paint spilled on his paperwork and therefore the ticket was no longer available. But I find that hard to believe. Sounds totally not made up to me. But still, there's more that could have been done to combat the state. Besides should have been an easy job impeaching the credibility of the IDs. You had this patently bogus statement from Eric Cook about an alleged phone call confession that you could conclusively prove never took place. So what happened with that? Apparently, after my attorney showed the Commonwealth attorney the copy of my phone records, the phone records reflect that Eric never even called me. They allowed Eric to change his testimony. And they also sealed his statement that he made to the Virginia Beach police because in the discovery, when my mom had it pulled from the archives, they did not allow us to see any statement he ever made to the police. So all you knew was that he alleged that you confessed on a phone call. This wasn't some opportunity to cross-examine and create doubt. When you submitted the phone records to evidence as proof of the lies, that would and should have shut down their lying star witness completely. So the state just sidestepped your defense with more lies. But you had no idea that they were going to do this. How could you have predicted that? Your defense was prepared to disprove the lie about the phone call, but was not prepared to combat this new lie. The evidence was not shared with the defense. It's just a perfect example of a Brady violation right out in the open, in plain sight. So what did he change his story to? He changed his story and said that he walked up on a conversation that me and his brother was plotting to rob his bank in Virginia Beach. And we sat and planned it out in detail, myself and his brother. And the Commonwealth's attorney basically vouched for his credibility and how he was coming forward at great risk to himself because of me being an extremely dangerous individual. And that he was putting himself at great risk to protect the citizens of Virginia Beach from people like myself. So not a bank robber trading false testimony for leniency, but actually a concerned citizen with nothing to gain. 
just a concerned citizen. They were ordered by the judge not to bring up his criminal history, none of his prior crimes, because in Chesapeake, his sentencing had been postponed and in Portsmouth, his sentencing had been postponed. And under the guidelines of the law, until he's officially sentenced by a judge, he is not a convicted felon. He was actually warned before he started his line of questioning not to ask him any questions about where he's housed at or anything that would lead him into the divulging to the jury that he was arrested and convicted of any type of crime. For his testimony, he was given three years and 30 days for the attempted bank robbery in Portsmouth, the two of farms and the commission of a felony, and the attempted capital murder of a police officer. Jesus, I mean, even the attempted murder of a police officer usually carries, you know, a little bit more than that. Of course, but his statute on attempt murder is either life or death. He did three years and 30 days, and then only was sentenced for the Chesapeake bank robbery after he was released from prison. By the time they suspended all this time, he only did six years and eight months. So between the two robberies, the three use of farms and the commission of a felony, and the attempt capital murder of a police officer, he got less than 10 years. So your lawyer wasn't even allowed to bring up the fact that this guy is receiving a huge break on his own charges in exchange for testifying against you. This is really dirty. So so Eric Cook's statement appeared to be corroborated by the now, all of a sudden, 100% sure witnesses. And that was enough to overcome the fingerprint evidence to the contrary, which by that, I mean the fact that you certainly were not there. The fingerprints that were recovered, we couldn't even really go into that too much because the Commonwealth attorney, she didn't want the fingerprints entered into evidence. What about your attorney? Uh, he didn't make the motion. So the jury came to a sadly predictable conclusion. Nobody in the jury would look at me, which I knew that was a bad sign. They came with the guilty verdict. I looked over to Moline and Huntington. Huntington winked at me and told me, he said, I told you I was going to get you. We'll be right back after this. This episode is underwritten by AIG, a leading global insurance company. AIG is committed to corporate social responsibility and is making a positive difference in the lives of its employees and in the communities where we work and live. In light of the compelling need for pro bono legal assistance and in recognition of AIG's commitment to criminal and social justice reform, the AIG pro bono program provides free legal services and other support to underrepresented communities and individuals. So now you're convicted, but you still had to go to sentencing when your lawyer still had one move left. He located Eric Cook's brother, Daryl, who took the stand. Daryl Cook came forward and took the stand, and my attorney asked him some questions and basically just said his brother was lying because he, he didn't want to do the time. And again, and my lawyer made a motion that the judge set aside the verdict and order a new trial or overturn the conviction altogether, but the judge wasn't having it. He upheld the conviction. The fact that his brother got on the stand and then they found phone records were bogus, that there was never a call. I don't know how that did not get overturned. He upheld my sentencing, which my guidelines was five years and one month. The mid-range point was six years and two months. Nine years was the max, and they gave me 48 years and a $30,000 fine. So in light of Eric Cook's own brother coming in to testify against him, the state's star witness, which should have really shaken their confidence in this conviction, instead of the max of nine years, they doubled down on this tragedy by over-sentencing you 
So your lawyer must have had an appeal ready to go. I know in Virginia you've got to get it filed within 30 days of the conviction, though, right? He had a state-appointed attorney that really did nothing for him. Even times I would go to his office to try and meet with him. I think I was avoided twice. The third time I laid in wait in the parking lot. They said he wasn't there. So I stayed in the parking lot until he got there so I could have a talk with him. How did that conversation go? I went up to his office with him because I wanted to know what was going on. Where are we now with the, the appeal? Well, that's when he let me know he didn't get it filed in time. Arthur Ermrich, who has been disbarred more than three times for one of the very things that he did to me. You know how you have a constitutional right to an appeal? I've never had an appeal for my case in Virginia Beach because he made the motion that he would be filing an appeal and never filed it, and I was time-barred. So my constitutional right to appeal was lost. It was revealed later that he had a cocaine habit, and he was derelict in his duties. So I know when I when I claimed ineffective assistance of counsel, that's exactly what I had. But the Commonwealth attorney, when they get to file their briefs, they claim I was only claiming ineffective assistance of counsel is because I was unsatisfied with the outcome of my trial. So you were time-barred on the direct appeal and denied on a clear case of ineffective assistance of counsel, and therefore you were stuck to serve out a 48-year sentence, effectively a life sentence. Now, at this time, Virginia made another horrendous move, which is that they did away with parole entirely. But if your jury had not been advised that you would never be eligible, as was, in fact, the case here, you would have been what is known as a fishback candidate. So that becomes an issue later on, and we'll explain that. So you've potentially got parole to look forward to. Meanwhile, unbeknownst to you, Detective Huntington was out there for several years building up a case against you for the double homicide, and he was talking to people you knew through your you know, hobby of riding motorcycles, as well as some guys that you knew from your short time that you spent dealing drugs. And Detective Huntington was working on coercing and incentivizing them to cooperate. And eventually he was successful at finding five people who were willing to do it by 1999. Every single one of them have cases against them. And most of them are big time drug dealers or in the drug trade. And they have something to gain by lying on Terrence Hobbs. Detective Huntington, yeah, he, he was uh, on a mission to convict the wrong man of these double murders. Terry, since the only thing you knew about Eric Cook's initial statement at this point was that he had implicated you in the robbery, and the rest of the details were sealed, including the fact that he had implicated you in the double murder as well, were you even aware of Detective Huntington's investigation? When did you find out? I was actually sitting in prison at Southampton Correctional Facility. I'm sitting in the cell looking at television, and they had movies on the weekend that they rent for us to see. And one of my friends come past the cell and he say, T, he said, man, he said, I just saw you on the news. They just indicted you for two counts of capital murder. I said, man, go ahead with that bullshit. Stop playing. He said, man, I wouldn't play about nothing like that. He said, turn from the movie channel. He said, if you turn to NBC, CBS, or ABC, every time they show a commercial, they're showing your face on the news and you being charged in a cold case. I couldn't believe it. And then we thought back to what had happened that night. He and his sister had gone to the movie. Right. He was with his sister at the movies and came by your house for some mail, then went back to his sister's. 
She accounted for his arrival around midnight, the same time that an ear witness heard gunshots from Devonna Byer's apartment. She and Leon Porter were each shot once, execution style. She had already been threatened that if she testified against the drug kingpin, which was her daughter's father, then what would happen to her? He had already shot and killed someone else that was carrying his baby before he was locked up. But rather than tracking down those leads, Detective Huntington just went ahead and pursued Terry, whose fingerprints again were not found in a scene where they almost certainly should have been, considering his relationship with Devonna. And Terry was more than helpful. He came to Devonna's house with his sister, who was ready to vouch for his whereabouts, and all of his guns were tested for ballistics evidence. He willingly gave his fingerprints, submitted to a GSR testing. No matches were found. And at least initially, he was willing to take a lie detector test, but none of that was good enough for this Detective Huntington. It almost makes you think that he was doing everything he could to avoid investigating the guy who he should have been investigating, which was Skeet Richardson. So with this lack of evidence and clear standout suspect, Detective Huntington had to get creative, and he conjured up five witnesses. But the stories weren't quite adding up. But even with this weak-ass bullshit case, publicly... They were claiming that they had five corroborating witnesses. If you look at the newspaper article that was dated October the 1st, 1999, in the Virginia Pilot newspaper, they were requesting the death penalty. And they even came to me with a 20-year plea to try to get me to plead guilty for two counts of capital murder. And I refused to take a guilty plea of 20 years for two murders that I had not committed. They came back and brought a 10-year plea to me, and I refused to take that as well. They had my attorney ask me would there be any amount of time that I would be willing to accept so that they wouldn't have to take me to trial, and I would not take it. I actually still have a copy of the 20-year plea. They did the 10-year plea verbally. 20-year plea for two counts of capital murder to run concurrent with the 48 years in Virginia Beach. Now, the state of Virginia, there's only two penalties for capital murder. It's life or death. So how do you offer a man a 20-year plea and then turn around and offer him a 10-year plea for a capital murder unless you know he didn't do it? Yes, they know he's not the guy. No prosecutor would come with a 10-year plea deal on a double murder if they knew he committed the crime. No way. No how. That's just bullshit. They want to close the case. Nevertheless, they took him to trial knowing that the evidence was all just incentivized test lies that started with Eric Cook. He was so unreliable that they did not even include him in this proceeding at all. Now, the five quote-unquote new witnesses here were Sean Saunders, Curtis Freeman, William Godwin, Derek Blackwell, and Tyrone Wallace, and we're about to destroy all of their credibility right now. Well, Sean Saunders, who happens to be a three-time felon and who admitted to Terry's mom after the trial that he had lied to avoid going back to prison, he worked with Terry on the construction job at the Coast Guard base. He testified that he and Terry were good friends throughout high school, but Saunders had, you know, actually dropped out of school in eighth grade. According to Terry, he didn't see him again until he worked with him on the Coast Guard job. And Saunders claimed that while they were working together, that Terry told him that he and Devana were breaking up and that if he ever found Devana with another man, he would kick in the door of her apartment if he had to and would kill her. Sean Saunders claimed that he told my supervisor 
my supervisor actually came to court and testified on my behalf. He said we were never alone together, that he worked in one place and I worked in another. A year before the trial, interestingly, Saunders had been subpoenaed, but he didn't tell the authorities about Terry's alleged admissions. Then, you know, it was only the day before Terry's trial, after Saunders again was arrested for selling drugs, did Saunders come up with a story that Terry threatened to kick in Devonna's door and kill her if he, if, if he saw her with another man. Saunders testified that Terry had said he would park his motorcycle around back and kick in the back door and use a silencer on a gun. But there's a problem with this. That ear witness would have definitely heard a motorcycle. And importantly, there is no back door. <laughs> so he would have made that mistake to say, I'm going to kick in the back door knowing there is no back door. Right. Terry knew that apartment well and never would have mentioned a non-existent back door. Now, Curtis Freeman, he was facing home invasion and robbery charges. What did he say to save his own skin? Freeman's testifying that he was familiar with Terry's motorcycle, which he described as being a neon greenish color and purple and uh, allegedly unique because of his bright colors. Despite Terry riding with many others who also had these colorful sport motorcycles. He also testified that he noticed Terry's motorcycle parked around the block from Devonna's apartment on the night of the murders. And that uh, he said Terry had a notoriously loud motorcycle because of the modifications. So now the bike is parked around the block. And again, where was the ear witness on this extremely loud motorcycle? They heard the gunshots, but no notoriously loud motorcycle speeding away. They somehow missed that one. Freeman was given probation for a home invasion and robbery because of his cooperation. And Lenny can back me up here, but these are not the types of sentences that Virginia is known for doling out for home invasions or anything for that matter. I mean, Lenny got over a thousand years for stealing just a little bit over $500. Oh my goodness. So now we're at William Godwin or Bill Godwin, right? He was in federal custody on drug possession conspiracy charges with a 17 and a half year sentence. Initially, he had said that he didn't know anything about the murders, but knew that Terry was innocent. What did he say to get released after just two and a half years? He just like he claimed that he was with me and he saw me uh, threaten Greg Elliott with a firearm because Greg was at her house visiting her. And Greg Elliott came to court and subpoenaed as a Commonwealth attorney witness. And once he took the stand, basically said that everything that Bill testified to was a lie. So there goes lie number one. Then Godwin testified that he had been told by a man named Daryl Evans about a conversation that Evans had overheard in which Terry had confessed to the murders. Daryl Evans come to court and testify and refuse Bill's testimony. So there goes Godwin making the Commonwealth look stupid again. He also alleged that Terry had basically confessed to him about the murders, but I think Godwin had already told too many lies that have been refuted in court for anyone to take him seriously about anything. So on to Derek Blackwell. Now, he was in federal custody on charges of being a drug kingpin and running a criminal enterprise, facing 30 years to life. Initially, he had told police that he knew nothing about the crimes. But then... He lies and says about two to three weeks after the killings, he and Terry were at a gas station in Portsmouth. And Terry, unsolicited now, admits to shooting Devonna and Porter. He first offered his story about Terry's alleged confession about two months after he had been arrested in November of 1997 for federal drug conspiracy charges. Blackwell only served three and a half years as a result of his cooperation. Interesting, with Blackwell's testimony, you know, he said Terry was with him at his house all day 
until 7 p.m. on July 19, 1996. That's directly contradicted by Terry's work time card at the Coast Guard base that day. Just another fucking lie. Just add that to his description of Terry's bike as primarily black. I thought it was neon green and purple. So enough of this guy. Last but not least, Tyrone Wallace, who was in federal custody facing drug conspiracy charges. Evidence is clear that the door was kicked in. Wallace testified that Terry admitted he killed Devonna in Porter after he had parked his bike. Now it's a couple of blocks away, not behind, a couple blocks away on the night of the murders and entered the apartment with a duplicate key. Yeah, we know the door had been kicked in. He also said that Terry had said that he shot Porter while he was lying in bed and that he shot Devonna from under the chin. But the medical examiner established that Porter was shot in the face while sitting at the end of the bed, and Devonna had been shot in the back of the head. So contradiction after contradiction after contradiction. You know, he faced 22 years and served less than four. Come on, man. It's just exponential injustice on top of an already insane double wrongful conviction. But I mean, couldn't the jury see how these guys, their stories just weren't matching up, that their stories didn't match the facts of the crime? And in some cases, their lies were called out by both defense and prosecution witnesses that this was not some jealous boyfriend case, but rather a homicide that was in retribution for Devonna's testimony against her ex. Yeah, the, the Commonwealth attorney kept downplaying that as that would not be enough motive compared to the evidence that they had. And the only evidence that they had against me was the false testimony of these witnesses. And I guess the only thing that I could think, could think that would have caused me to get a guilty verdict is that the jury would feel like, well, all of these guys can't be lying, even though they were. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview, Great Falls, offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. You're ready for a comeback. And with Purdue Global, you can do more than take classes. You can take charge of your story, of your career, of your life. Earn a degree you can be proud of and get an education employers respect. It's time, your time, not just to go back to school, but to come back and move forward with Purdue Global. 
Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. They had tried to kill me without killing my body. They killed me by killing my reputation, which in turn caused me to be found guilty of these crimes. And they thought that this was going to be the end for me, that they were going to lock me up for basically 1,300 years, and that was going to be the end of my story. And that's a number that Lenny is all too familiar with. These insane numbers really started after they abolished parole in Virginia, right? When was that? Well, guys had opportunities at parole well before 95, January 95. So even in a case like this, if you had a life sentence, you start going up for parole in 12 years. Two life sentences... You still get an opportunity to go up. You just, it would take around 20 years. Guys still had a shot if you weren't given life without the possibility of parole. The life sentences didn't nail you until after they abolished parole. And so now if you get life, it means exactly that, life. Wow. And you have how long to file your appeal in Virginia? You got 30 days to get that appeal in immediately. So, Terry, I'm going to imagine that you didn't just want to take this insane sentence lying down. But with two wrongful convictions and this seriously short amount of time for a meaningful appeal to be filed, no potential DNA testing, no possibility of parole. What happened? Did your lawyer screw it up and get time barred again? We actually went through the actual entire appeal process and not one single judge would overturn the convictions. I mean, post-conviction litigation is largely based on whether or not you receive due process and if any constitutional rights were violated. I'm sure ineffective assistance could be argued here, but accompanying actual innocence claims can be helpful with any other claims. And the only evidence against you at the second trial were these inconsistent and patently and obviously false statements from these incentivized witnesses. Was all of that pointed out to them? Yes, all of this stuff was pointed out. But the sad fact of the matter is a lot of these people don't want to point the finger at another prosecutor or police officer and say that they were wrong. And that's just a sad fact of the matter. Without the support of my family, I believe I would have lost myself in here. Because I'm going to tell you something. I'm surrounded in this small amount of acreage of this penitentiary. I'm around from everything that you could possibly think of, murderers, rapists, child molesters, necrophiliac, bestiality. I'm around the worst of the worst. Had I not had the love and support of my family sticking by me and just received that unconditional love, it kept me from losing myself in here. To be completely honest with you, I don't know what kind of person I would be now had I been left to living in this environment of violence and blood and sweat and tears. People, seeing people commit suicide, hanging themselves because they could not do this time. I do this time every single day, alcohol-free, disease-free, drug-free, or any of those things. So the things that most people do in here to deal with this reality, I deal with sober. That's the only way I can have a clear head to do what I need to do to try to mount the best defense that I can for myself. And when people like yourself are interested in hearing my story, I can tell it to you. And of course, people like Lenny who heard your story. If not for him, we wouldn't be having this recording session right now. And if I hadn't read about his story, of course, in the New York Times, I'm not sure any of us would be talking right now. Lenny, how did you and Terry end up meeting? I was transferred to Nottaway Correctional Center in 1998. And I think I were, yeah, we, we met around the early 2000s. And Terry, because of what he's been through, he is totally aloof, walking around with this grit on his face every day. 
And most people really didn't like Terry inside because of that. And so he just kind of gravitated towards me. I was a leader in the church and doing a lot of teaching and mentoring. And a little bit at a time, he started sharing with me his story. And I would tell him, I says, well, Terry, what are you doing about this? Well, at that time, that's I was working on a conditional pardon. I said, man, your case is so bad that I could not possibly see anybody reading all of this and not doing something about it. And so eventually I would be granted my pardon on January 12th, 2018. My wife had already gotten hired by attorney John A. Cogshill. He added me to the team the very next day after my release. Once attorney Cogshill created what he called the pardon petition team, Terry Hobbs was our first client. So we've been working with him since the end of 2018. So what happened with the conditional pardon petition? We filed his original pardon petition in 2020, just based on the bogus bank robbery. They turned it down because they believed that he was a fishback candidate. Fishback is for guys who were sentenced between 95 and 2000, and the jury wasn't instructed that parole had been abolished. So these guys are getting these long sentences and the jurors don't know that there's no parole in Virginia. So they were under the assumption that Terry was a fishback candidate. In hindsight now, I think we probably should have done the double murders first because it was it was those double murders that removed Terry from being uh, fishback eligible for parole. If we could have gotten the double murders removed with a pardon, that would have just left the bank robbery, which would have allowed him to go up for parole, turned down his original pardon petition. And we had to wind up calling Miss Trudy Harris, who's the chief investigator over the parole board, informing her about all of this. And they would eventually reinstate his petition. I mean, honestly, because he's an innocent man of both of those things, we went ahead and added an addendum to that original pardon petition showing both the bank robbery and the double murders as being bogus. And that was November 2021. So in essence, his petition, from what I understand, hasn't reached the stage of a full investigation yet. And we're waiting on that. And Lenny, normally we speak with our guest attorney. I'm very happy to speak with you, but there's another sad note to this story about why we're not speaking with him. And I'm talking, of course, about the late, great John Cogshaw. Well, unfortunately, attorney John Cogshaw, he passed away June 19th, 2022. It was totally unexpected. We, we were just visiting him in April of 2022. We all went to an awards event where he was awarded attorney of the year. Vandy and I were awarded Authors of the Year, and we just saw him. His wife had just passed away, probably three to four months before he did. And we could kind of tell that, you know, he that took the wind out of his sails. You know, I'm sure he would have loved to get Terry over the line before he passed, but you and your wife, Vandy, are going to get him there, as you have done for so many others already. And I understand John trusted you both implicitly actually making you two fearless warriors a branch of his firm. We were the Western branch of the John A. Cogshill Law Firm, yes. And so, yeah, we obtained 11 pardons since 2018. 
including my own. You're an inspirational guy, and I know you can do it. So I know it was Terry McAuliffe that pardoned you, and Governor Northam was also very active in this arena. Now we have Governor Glenn Youngkin. The thing about the pardon process, when you're running a state as big as Virginia, a commonwealth as big as Virginia, they just don't have time to investigate. So he appoints people to do that. Trudy Harris being the chief investigator for the parole board over pardons. And then you have five parole board members. So he delegates that task onto them. And they make a recommendation to the governor. Nine out of 10 times, unless it's something high profile and the governor just doesn't want it to taint his political career, he goes with the recommendation of that parole board and those investigators. Well, I hope Ms. Harris is listening. We implore her, don't listen to us. Follow the evidence. Look at the flimsy false testimony in this case that was refuted by other witnesses and the physical evidence, plus the more likely suspects. I think you'll find that this should be an easy decision. Now, we're going to have action steps linked in the bio, and I also ask that our audience scroll down and get involved. I always say pressure breaks pipes, people, and we need you now. And with that, we're going to go to my favorite part of the show. Of course, this is the part we call closing arguments, where I turn my microphone off and let you guys have the final say. So I'm going to kick back in my chair with my headphones on. Lenny Singleton, why don't you go first, then Ms. Catherine Hobbs, and of course, Terry, we're going to save you for last. Thank you all for being here. And now I'm just going to sit back and listen. This could happen to anyone. Uh, he wasn't a choir boy, but he wasn't a bank robber, and he wasn't a killer. This just goes to show that our criminal justice system still has a very long ways to go, especially as it relates to African-American men. Sadly, we make up about 60% of the prison system in Virginia, and something needs to change. We need to get involved. We need to talk to our elected officials, uh, get them involved with fixing the things that we know are wrong. Using convicted felons as your only evidence in any case just can't take someone's word for it, especially if they're getting a deal. You got to have more evidence than that. He got involved with the wrong people and they just used him to gain their own freedom. I think Terry was naive on a lot of things, and they could see that. So they just used him. He said, Mom, I never would have did anything like this to anybody. So I didn't think nobody would do this to me. And neither did I. He needs to come home. He's grown up. He needs to spend time with his daughter. He needs to spend time with his whole family. And I am so grateful and appreciative for what you all are doing. Thank you very much, Jason, to take this time out to interview me, to shine a light on the injustice that was done to me. I wouldn't wish this on any person, ever. Detective Beachler, when he came to see me to serve the indictments on me at Southampton, they even implied that I may could help them with other cases and make my charges less or disappear altogether. I told him after what I've gone through and what my family has gone through, I would never put anyone or their family through what my family has endured just to regain my freedom. 
I'm not that individual. I have to be able to look myself in the mirror and like what I see on a daily basis. Even if it was to spend the rest of my life in prison, I had to live my life and be able to hold my head up with pride and know that I did not lie on somebody else or ruin somebody else's life just to ease my suffering. Because that's what they wanted me to do. Thank you for listening to Wrongful Conviction. I'd like to thank our production team, Connor Hall, Jeff Clyburn, and Kevin Wardis, with research by Lila Robinson. The music in this production was supplied by three-time Oscar-nominated composer Jay Ralph. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at Wrongful Conviction, on Facebook at Wrongful Conviction Podcast, and on Twitter at Wrong Conviction, as well as at Lava for Good on all three platforms. You can also follow me on both TikTok and Instagram at It's Jason Flom. Wrongful Conviction is a production of Lava for Good Podcast in association with Signal Company Number One. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80, live March 20th from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste, the all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Residents at Brightview Senior Living Communities enjoy enhanced possibilities, independence, and choice. Brightview Dulles Corner in Herndon and Brightview Great Falls offer vibrant senior independent living, assisted living, and memory care services through various daily programs and cultural events. Chef-prepared meals, safety and security, transportation, resort-style amenities, and high-quality care. Everything you need is here. Discover more at brightviewseniorliving.com. Equal housing opportunity. CNN Underscore's Guide to Sleep has tons of recommendations for products that can help you get the best night's sleep ever. All right, let's face it. Most of us have had trouble falling or staying asleep at some point. And there are a lot of products and hacks claiming to be the solution to our sleepless nights. That's why the CNN Underscore team spend hundreds of hours testing products to find the ones that can make a huge difference in the quality of your slumber. Visit Underscore.com now for our ultimate guide to getting better sleep.